0: As Will said, my name's Owen. Uh, If we haven't met before, whether you're here in person or whether you're with us on the live stream, uh, I just want to say thank you for choosing to spend some time with us this afternoon. And I hope uh, that you enjoy this next bit of time, as well as the rest of our time together this afternoon. And that actually you come away not just feeling like I got some more information this afternoon, but that you would get to the end of our service today... Feeling like something's changed in my life. Something has changed in my heart. Something materially is different now for me going forward than was at the start of this afternoon. That's my prayer for you uh, as we go through this. And so, as Will mentioned, we're continuing uh, in a series we started some time ago, just walking through the New Testament book of Luke, line by line, verse by verse, seeking to understand. Uh, how it would speak into our lives today and how it would apply for us today. And the, the point in the story we're at is, is very near the, the climax of Luke's gospel. Because we call this series On the Road with Jesus because it, it follows Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross where he would be crucified And along the way, he encounters all of these different people. And we we get a front row seat, as it were, through Luke's gospel. At seeing how Jesus engaged with people. How he told them that their sins could be forgiven. That it was possible for them to have relationship with, with him, relationship with God. He brought them hope. We see Sick people who were healed, lame people who began to walk, blind eyes who were opened, leprous people who were complete social outcasts, cleansed and welcomed back in to community with other people, but most importantly with God. And we are right near the kind of high point of Luke's story. Jesus is near now on Jerusalem. And we're going to jump in into chapter 19 We'll read from verse one through to 27, but the way we'll do this is we'll kind of read and pause and talk about it as we go. So rather than doing one big chunk, we're just gonna keep kind of reading and pausing. And much of our time today is gonna be spent on a a parable, a story with a meaning that Jesus told. Uh, And it's a story really about resources and priorities and responding to Jesus. But before we get there, we actually begin with a climber. Just given we're in a climbing sense, it feels very appropriate. So if you were with us last week, you might remember that in chapter 18, one of the people who Jesus met, I'm gonna switch microphones because this one's making funny noises. I'll just use this one. Is that better? Can you hear the funny noises have gone away? Brilliant. Let's get rid of this. Thanks, Rich. Good. Um, One of the people who Jesus met last week, who we read about in chapter 18, was was a rich ruler, a a young man who was of great social import and who had a large amount of wealth. And the, the sad conclusion to his encounter with Jesus was that he went away sad. It says he walked away sad. And the reason he walked away sad was that he treasured his worldly wealth more than the prospect of eternity with God or the joy of knowing Jesus. The, the man was actually short sighted and he held on to what he ultimately couldn't keep. You know, when he goes to the grave, like he, he can't take that with him. He held on to what he ultimately could not keep so tightly. That he couldn't lay hold of that which would last forever. And he walked away sad as a result. But by contrast today we're going to meet another very wealthy man. He doesn't walk away. Instead he climbs. Now I know there are a number of people in this room who climb. Who enjoy climbing. That's part of the reason that you've ended up at Foundation Church. there are people who climb for all kinds of reasons, aren't there? And I don't know what motivates you, but there there are some people who climb to get fit or to keep fit. There are others who climb for the sense of accomplishment, for the, the achievement of having conquered something, particularly outside, when you get up high. People climb to test or push our limits. Like, is it possible? Can I do it? Some people climb just because they enjoy the feeling of doing it. Some people climb particularly outdoors because they enjoy the connection with nature. They enjoy that sense and awareness of being connected to something bigger than themselves. Some people, less common... Do it to be seen or known or for recognition? And others climb for the view at the top. And the man who we meet today climbed for the view. He climbed because of what he would see when he got there. Or more specifically, who he would see when he got there. And so we're going to read from the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1. And we'll pause and talk about it as we go. So we read this. He, and the he here is Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Jesus is going through this big city of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. It's the last major city he goes through before he arrives in Jerusalem to be crucified. It says, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, we've talked about tax collectors before, but tax collectors in Jewish culture were not popular people. If you were a tax collector, you were working for the enemy. You were raising money for your Roman oppressors. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors and sinners of the worst kind. So when we're told about this man named Zacchaeus, who was not just a tax collector, but was a chief tax collector, we go, this is not a well-liked man. He's not a popular guy. He's a guy who is driven by self-preservation, greed, a desire to accumulate wealth, often through corruption, through extorting more money out of people than he was really supposed to take because uh, he was allowed to cream off the top and keep that for himself. And to get his position as chief tax collector, it's most likely that he accomplished that through being more corrupt than the other tax collectors and extorting more taxes from people than the other tax collectors. Not a great guy. Hmm. <laughs> But there's something else about Zacchaeus that we learn very quickly. We read this from verse three. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. See, this wealthy but very materialistic, greedy, corrupt man was seeking to see who Jesus was. It's such a great line. It's, It's pregnant with meaning. Zacchaeus knew that his wealth wasn't actually the answer. He wasn't content. He'd heard about Jesus. And he wanted to see for himself. Is he the real deal? Is this a man who can bring meaning into my life? Is this a man who can bring the satisfaction that all this money I've got isn't bringing me. He wanted to see for himself, but there were some obstacles. We read on. But on account of the crowd, he could not, he could not see Jesus, because he was small of stature. Man, this guy was not having a good time of it, (laughs) right? He wasn't popular. He was a tax collector. People would have literally crossed the street to avoid being on the same side of the road as a tax collector. He was shunned everywhere he went. And what's more, he was apparently really quite small, which wouldn't have been looked on well either in that culture. Because he's smaller stature. We read on verse 4. So he ran on ahead of the crowd, that is, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus didn't make excuses. He didn't give up at the first hurdle. He persevered. He was determined to see for himself who Jesus was. He didn't walk away like the rich man in chapter 18. He didn't settle for earthly riches that he already had. He knew that he needed to see Jesus. And so he climbed. He climbed the tree. We read on from verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This is amazing. Zacchaeus climbs to see Jesus. He says, I've I've got to see for myself if there's something in this. If Jesus really is the answer. And Jesus approaches Zacchaeus in his mess, in his sin, and says, I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus. Like Culturally, this was totally scandalous. It was a really big deal. Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. His reputation preceded him. Jesus knew he's a tax collector. He knows the life this man has, and the reputation he has, and the standing he has in society, and the way he would have been viewed in Jewish society. He knew that Zacchaeus would be viewed as a, a corrupt sinner of the worst kind. To enter someone's house and receive hospitality from them culturally is a massive, massive deal. But it still is, isn't it? Like, you don't tend to just invite anyone in your house. And if you know someone's an unsavory character, on the whole, you're not inclined to invite yourself around to their place for some food. No self-respecting Jew, especially no rabbi, a teacher, who Jesus was, would go into a tax collector's home. It would be unthinkable. Doing so would, would just completely ruin their reputation to be associated with someone like that. But Jesus doesn't say to him, Zacchaeus, I'd like to come round. But first, if you could get your life straight. (laughs) Like, I would come over, Zacchaeus, and I know you're keen to see me, but you need to stop being a tax collector, and you need to get yourself sorted out, you need to get it all cleaned up, and then, you know, we could hang out. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming To your house. Into your brokenness. You have to get it all sorted first. I know who you are. I know what your life is like. I'm coming to meet with you. To fellowship with you. There's another place in the Bible where we find Jesus speaking like this to people. We find in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus Speaks to the church in a place called Laodicea. We, we find in the first part of Revelation these words from Jesus to seven churches, and in chapter three we find Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea. And it's clear from the contents of this letter to the church in Laodicea that it's it's a mess, and there's a call to repentance, to turn around. But Jesus' word to them in their sin and in their shame is this. We read from verse 20. He says this to them. He says, here I am. It's like he came to Zacchaeus at the bottom of that sycamore tree. And here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus doesn't say, whoever gets their lives in order and makes everything nice and clean, then I'll come in. He doesn't say, whoever ticks all the boxes of morality and is a respectable person, then I'll come in. No. They're saying, I'm here. I want to meet with you. I want fellowship with you. There'll be cleaning up to do There will be, but that comes as you welcome Jesus in, not before. Whatever mess or brokenness there is in your life, and I I don't know all of you, I do know that we all can be quite good at hiding what we wanna hide from people. Whatever shame you might be carrying today, however much you might wanna hide for fear of judgment, Jesus wants to meet you today. And like he stood at the bottom of that tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. Like he said to the church in Laodicea, I'm standing at the door knocking. Whoever opens their heart to let me in, I, I want to fellowship with you and eat with you. The same invitation is there for you today. She says, I, I, I want to come and bring wholeness into your life. I want to come and bring healing into your life if you would open and welcome me in. How does Zacchaeus respond to this invite? We read from verse six. He hurried down, he hurried, sorry, and came down and received him joyfully. It's important to notice this. It it seems to me knowing Jesus to be the logical response, but the man in chapter 18 didn't have that response. He went away sad because he was trusting in something other than Jesus to secure him. But Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully And all of this, Jesus going to his house, Zacchaeus receiving him, is shorthand in the way Luke's gospel is written. saying Zacchaeus inherited eternal life by receiving Jesus. He entered into relationship with God. For Jesus to go into his house and to eat with him and to be there to receive his hospitality, Zacchaeus entered into relationship with God. Not because he lived a good life or because he did all the right things, but because he joyfully received Jesus. Zacchaeus climbed up and saw Jesus as the great treasure and he received him joyfully. We read from verse seven how the crowd responded. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He had gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Underlining again, Zacchaeus didn't have to get sorted before Jesus would come to him, and neither do you. And the truth is, actually, if we could do that, if we could get our lives all sorted, we wouldn't need a savior. (laughs) We wouldn't need forgiveness, we wouldn't need Christ. But the point is, we can't, because we fail to live up even to our own standards, let alone God's. But Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully. And we read on, as he went to his house from verse eight, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus didn't get sorted before Jesus entered into relationship with him, but man, when he met with Jesus, everything changed. In a moment. Jesus came in and loved Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' heart changed. Where he'd once been motivated by greed and pursued wealth to secure him. Like, why else would you do that job? Right? Unless you thought that money was the answer. <laughs> like, the whole job is focused on getting as much money as you can out of people to make your life as financially comfortable as possible. I mean it seems a kind of crazy job to go for for me because you end up socially like rejected but you're like hey but it's okay because I've got loads of money like I can buy whatever I want. Zacchaeus really thought that was going to fulfill him. It was going to secure him. It was going to give him what he was looking for and longing for and where he had once viewed money as his saviour now he knew that wasn't the case he knew that Jesus was what he'd been looking for in finances that they never fulfilled he found in a moment in Jesus the security that he longed for he received in a moment as Jesus loved him And invited him in. And so all of a sudden. His greed. His grip on finances. His desire to accumulate more and more and more for himself. Evaporates. Because he realizes I don't don't need this. (laughs) This this isn't giving what it promised to give. So he willingly gives it away. First up half of everything he's got given to the poor and then where he'd been taking more than he should from people he says like everyone who i've defrauded which is basically everyone who he'd collect taxes from pretty well <laughs> he's going to give back four times what he'd taken from them <laughs> he gives away with incredible generosity Zacchaeus's actions show that his heart has changed completely See, when we meet with Jesus, when we find security in him, when we find the comfort that only he can offer, our lives are changed, our priorities change, our relationship to finance and everything else changes. And Jesus said to him, we read from verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he is also a son of Abraham, but the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus declares that on the evidence of Zacchaeus's response, the fact that what he wants, put all his hope in, he's all of a sudden just like giving it all away. He says on the evidence of that, I have no doubt in my mind, you're trusting me to secure you and not something else. Zacchaeus has been saved. Unlike the rich ruler in the last chapter who walked away sad, Zacchaeus received Jesus with joy and realized that true wealth, true treasure is eternal. It's found in Jesus alone, in relationship with Him, in knowing Him. And Jesus is very clear. That's why He came that people would know that. (laughs) To save people, it says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, to bring people into relationship with God, where they might be whole, where they might know real purpose and meaning in their lives that nothing else can bring. Jesus is clear, he came to save people, people like Zacchaeus, and people like you and I, we read on from verse 11. As they heard these things, the people who were around, he proceeded to tell a parable. That's a story with a meaning. Because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. These people heard Jesus declare what had happened in Zacchaeus's life. And they knew he was on his way to Jerusalem. He'd made it clear to them that he was the rescuer, the Messiah, God's promised rescuer that they'd been waiting for. They began to get excited. They were expecting Jesus, though, to lead them in a great political or military victory against their Roman occupiers. They thought that Jesus, as he was gathering followers on this journey, was basically gathering a, a group of rebels who were gonna go and take Jerusalem back and establish a new kingdom. That's, that's how they thought it was gonna roll. They were expecting the kingdom of God to be established imminently, with Jesus on the throne ruling them as God's anointed one. But Jesus knew that wasn't how things were going to work. The kingdom wouldn't look how they thought. and It wouldn't be fully realized for some time still to come. It still won't be for some time still to come. He knew that in Jerusalem he wouldn't lead them in a great political or military victory. But instead he would go to the cross. The victory they were expecting wasn't the victory that he would... Accomplish. His victory wouldn't be a military or political one, but it would be a decisive victory, not over the Romans, but over the true enemies of God's people, the true enemies of humanity. He would triumph over sin and death. So that those who trust in him would be forgiven. So that those who trust in him would inherit eternal life. He knew that there'd be citizens of the kingdom from that moment onwards, but that it wouldn't be a dramatic overnight revolution, but it would grow slowly through the generations as men and women from every nation would hear the good news that there was hope to be found in Jesus, that their sin and shame that they carried and that weighed them down that they worried might be discovered by people that might cause them to be rejected could be forgiven that the brokenness that they experienced could be dealt with and they could experience wholeness and that that would continue spreading and spreading until one final day when Jesus will return and make all things new. See, the the promise of the Bible is that Jesus has gone, but that Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, we've got youth next door popping balloons, apparently, (laughs) and making babies cry. It's dramatic. (laughs) I was gonna say, it's really good to hear the youth having a good time, and then a baby cried, and maybe it's not so good to hear the youth having a good time. <laughs> See the promise that we have is that one day Jesus is going to return and make all things new. That the, the heavens and earth as we know them will be destroyed, actually. But they'll be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth. Free from sin, free from death, free from suffering. A new heavens and a new earth where actually. Those who trust in Jesus will be brought home to live with him forever, free from sickness, free from pain, free from sorrow. This wasn't gonna come as quickly as the people who'd seen Jesus engage with Zacchaeus may have hoped. It's not gonna come as quickly as we might hope. But Christians now live in this tension between the now and not yet of the kingdom. See, if you've put your trust in Jesus, then your identity is not primarily based in where you are right now, or where you were born, or who you're related to, but it's in being in the family of God. Your brothers and sisters in the church around the world actually ultimately are of more consequence than your immediate flesh and blood family, as strange as that might sound to us. Those who trust in Jesus, our identity, is first and foremost that we are Christian, not that we're British or anything else. And we're to live as citizens of heaven, as we live according to the values That God gives us in scripture to live with an eternal hope. But living in that tension of the fact that Christ hasn't yet returned. All things have not been made new. There's still sin that we wrestle with. We don't live perfect. We struggle. We fall. We make mistakes. We need forgiveness. We see suffering and death. Because Christ has not yet come back to make all things new. and Jesus knew that we'd need to be prepared for that reality. He knew that those immediately around him would need to be prepared for that reality. And so he told this story to help them and to help us live in the tension of this now and not yet. We read from verse 12. This is the story he told. He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Ring any bells about what Jesus is about to do? He's telling them, and we get the benefit of hindsight, this is him. He's the nobleman. He's going to die on the cross, be raised to life, ascend to to heaven to be with the Father. He's going off into a far country to receive a kingdom. Hmm. And then return. He's coming back. Jesus is setting this up. He says, this is, this is me, guys. He carries on with the story. Calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minors. And said to them, engage in business until I come. I Jesus... Gathers his people around himself and gives them something, invests something in them and wants them to steward it well until he returns. We're going to talk more about what that is in a moment, but I want you to understand it's very valuable. Ten miners was a very significant amount of money. We read from verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. (laughs) In the story Jesus tells, as this nobleman goes off, they send a a group of people after him. They, They utterly reject him. We hate you. We don't want to live under your rule and your reign. We don't receive you as king because let's be honest jesus knew this would be the case we don't have to look far to know it's the case this is the state of much of humanity when it comes to god those created in god's image for god's glory reject him and his rule so god we're not interested in We don't want your rule in our lives. We want to do what we want to do. We know better. This is and always has been the heart of sin. The root issue of humanity's rejection of God is actually a rejection of his reign. And People don't tend to have a problem with the idea that God can give nice things to them that's why when hard things happen even most atheists will admit to praying because they want God to be able to do good things for them people on the whole don't have an issue with the idea that that God could, could give them stuff our problem is when it comes to him ruling or reigning over us us living in obedience to him rather than just getting nice things from him on the whole as people we don't want to submit to his authority we want to be an authority we don't want to live according to his way we want it our way maybe it's just me who struggles with that sometimes Jesus includes this in this story because he says this is going to be the case for many people. They will reject me. They don't want to submit to me or acknowledge that my way might be better than their way. We carry on with the story from verse 15. When he returned, and he will return, when he returned having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he would given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your miner has made ten miners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. This guy's got a tenfold return. That's pretty good going, right? Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your miner has made five miners. The fivefold return, he says to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minor which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow then why did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. They said to him, Lord, he has 10 miners. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now this with parables, We've said this before, if we obsess too much about the detail, we get tripped up and tangled in knots. Parables are intended to give one clear message. Okay, we're not supposed to try and allegorize everything or read into every detail. What's happened here is a nobleman has given some stuff to his servants and said use this while i'm gone invest it steward it and when he comes back he is eager to see a return on his investment okay don't get too bogged down in the detail that's what's happened he's eager to see a return on his investment in this parable the king returns he wants to know what his servants have done with the treasures he left them who's who in this story The nobleman we already said is Jesus. Who are the servants? Jesus' followers, Christians. Guys, we have received far more than 10 minors. If you're a Christian, you've received the greatest treasure in the world, in Christ. We have good news that can change people's lives, utterly, for all eternity. We've received that in order that we might share it. You've not been saved so you can sit on good news, but you've been entrusted with the gospel that you might share it with others. In the context of the kingdom now and not yet that Jesus was addressing and that we read into today, disciples of Jesus are called to bring about the kingdom of God more and more in their spheres of influence. Firstly, that's in sharing the good news of Jesus with those around you. If you're a Christian, you never tell anyone else about Jesus. You're probably not stewarding the resource he's given you very well. I know that might sound harsh. I can say it with a smile on my face, but it's, it's true. But it's broader than that. You see, everything you have as a Christian, absolutely Everything you have comes from his hand. And as servants of the king, we are invited to join in the business of the king. To invest in line with the priorities of the king. We're supposed to invest our time and treasure and talents according to his kingdom priorities. What are those? Well, we find them in The Bible, Jesus has just given us the headline a few verses earlier when he said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It's like, Christian, (laughs) priority number one. (laughs) With everything you've got, with all your time, treasure and talents, with all the resources which God has given you, your number one priority should be to join in the mission of God, to point people to Jesus to help them find hope and life and freedom in Him. Priority number one. You're called to do all you can with all you've got to see His kingdom advance, to love others as you've been loved by Him in word and in action. We are supposed to order our lives and steward our resources in the light of God's word, in the light of scripture, and in the light of Christ's return. In the full knowledge that he's coming back. When it comes to possessions, you can't keep them anyway. So why hold on to them so tightly? Everything you have can be of eternal value when you invest it in the right way. Everything you've got can be of eternal value when you invest it in the right way. Just think about it for a minute. Your sofa, this is a strange one to go for, but stick with me. You might think, my sofa's pretty old and worn out. Can it really have eternal value? to say yes it can when you invest it in the right way see you you could just use your sofa selfishly to snuggle watch Netflix and I'm not saying that that's not okay sometimes but what if you viewed your sofa as an asset which you have that you can leverage for the glory of God and the good of other people what if you viewed your sofa as an asset that can have eternal consequences because you can invite people into your home, make them feel welcome, love them, comfort them, pray for them, encourage them. Your sofa is something you have that you can use if you've got one. And you can do it with everything. But your table... So you could see your table, or even choose a table, based purely on your family or your individual needs, how it will work for you. Or, (laughs) you could think, hang on, this isn't just about us. We wanna have a table that's longer than we need just for us. This table, It's God's table. It's about his kingdom being extended so we want to make sure we've got space to host people, to feed people, to show love and care and hospitality for others. Now look, I, I don't want to alienate anyone with an illustration. I get that not everyone has space for a big table or the resources to buy one. I understand that. But the same applies to everything you have. Actually, to every moment you have to every ounce of talent that you've got. It can all be used when you see it in the right perspective to point people to Jesus, to love others as you've been loved by him. I could go on. I want you to consider how do you use your time? How do you view your time? How are you investing your time? What are you giving yourself to? What are you prioritizing? Are you asking, how can I use this resource, this time, this money, this talent to extend the kingdom of God, to help people find hope and life in Jesus, to make disciples, to comfort the brokenhearted? Guys, this is our call we've received a lot. We're supposed to invest it. We're supposed to invest it for eternal consequences. Now before you think, oh this is hard. We need to remember that our salvation isn't secured by this. I'm not saying you have to do all of these things to have a relationship with God. And if you don't, then you're a terrible person and you have no place in the church that's rubbish remember Zacchaeus it's by coming to Jesus alone that we might be saved by his kindness and his mercy now as we encounter him we're we're called to reflect his generosity and his grace and his goodness to those around us But, but it's not by doing that which we are saved in the first place, as Zacchaeus just illustrated. He saw Jesus. Jesus came in to fellowship with him, to eat with him. He didn't get himself sorted first. Jesus came to him in his mess, called him, and chose him. However, much you might not be doing this, maybe like <laughs> you just heard me talk about viewing your resources in that way, and you're like, well, I've never done that. And you start to think, oh gosh, <laughs> there's comfort. Be encouraged. I think there is a right challenge for us and an encouragement for us to see our resources that way, but it's not by that which we earn God's favor. Zacchaeus encountered Jesus in his brokenness and then his priorities change. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more instead of walking away sad, we climb up and look on Jesus like Zacchaeus did, the more our priorities change, the more we invest ourselves in his kingdom. We count the cost of discipleship based on what we treasure most. The more we see Jesus and treasure Jesus, the more prepared we are to invest in his kingdom priorities. There is finally a warning here for those who reject King Jesus. Remember at the start of this story, there were those citizens who said, we don't want your rule. We're not interested in you. Actually, they said they hated him. This story concludes, Jesus says in verse 27, this. This is the nobleman speaking, not Jesus, just to be clear. But the nobleman says in the story, who." But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. it's a very uncomfortable place to conclude what Jesus has just said. But it is an uncomfortable and unavoidable truth that we find in the Bible. That actually those who end up saying ultimately to God, we hate you and we won't submit to your rule, that they will end up finally being cut off from God. And along with him, all that's good. That Ultimately, when we reject the giver of life, what we receive and end up with is death. That's logical. If God is the giver of life and you say, God, I don't want you, then you don't have life. That's the logical outcome. But I want you to consider this like the rich man who walked away sad because he valued temporary treasure over eternal rejecting jesus actually makes no sense so there's no need for that guy to go away sad he could have had joy like zacchaeus rejecting jesus makes no sense if jesus is who he says he is i appreciate that's a big if if you're not a christian but i'd say it's one worth exploring It's worth climbing up like Zacchaeus to see for yourself who Jesus is. But if Jesus is who he says he is, we'd be crazy to reject him and refuse his rule. There's a pastor and author in America called Tabitha Anyabile, who says it like this. He says, there is no good reason to rebel against Jesus. Can you think... Of a good reason to rebel against a God who loves you and who gave his life to save you from hell and to love you forever. I can't. Rebellion only ends in destruction. I can't think of a good reason to reject Jesus if he is who he says he is. But both ways there's a cost to be counted. See, in following Jesus, the cost, which the man in chapter 18, who walked away sad, was unprepared to swallow. the cost is giving up what we can't keep. That doesn't feel like such a big cost to me. If I can't keep it anyway, if I can't take my treasure with me, it doesn't feel like such a big cost to give it up. But we do. And the cost of rejecting Jesus, though, is losing everything. I encourage you to find in him the greatest treasure, to know the sure and certain hope of eternity with him, and willingly and joyfully see everything you have as an opportunity to invest in that eternity.